When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. tuned into the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number This episode of the podcast is brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. You haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. And by Dogtra Callers. Dogtra brings you a full line of top quality, super functional dog training and handling products. Some of the best callers on the market. This month we are talking about the 1900S fully waterproof receiver and transmitter, water-resistant hands-free remote controller, ergonomic receiver design, perfect, perfect training collar, 
127 stimulation level rheostat dial. Another great caller from Dogtra. Find out more about that caller and more by visiting dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you will perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gordy and Sons Outfitters. When your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. When your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice before swinging through that quail. At Gordy and Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. And that's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Learn more about them and check out that awesome gear at GordianSons.com. And buy Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, rock-solid kennel, great size and weight. Everything you and your dog need for a safe and comfortable hunting trip. Check out Dakota283.com. Look at their kennels. If you buy one, use the promo code PU50DD for 50% off of a Dash product with purchase of a kennel and always free shipping from dakota283.com this week's winner of the podcast giveaway kyle alexander kyle left us a review in the itunes app we appreciate that very much anybody out there listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway all you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show leave the podcast a rating leave us a review just like kyle did subscribe to the podcast share the podcast, send us a feedback or a guest suggestion. We appreciate it, and we'd love to hear from our listeners. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Only one special announcement today, just a reminder of the films of The Feathered out there in Lander, Wyoming on June 14th, presented by the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. I'm going to be there, along with a bunch of other cool people, Ron Bame, Tyler Webster, J.C. Bosch is going to be there. I can't wait. It's going to be an awesome event. I got some details from the Wyoming Wildlife Federation yesterday. I am super excited to make the trip out to Lander, Wyoming in June. And I hope to see and meet some of you there. Go to wyomingwildlife.org and look for Films of the Feather for more event details. All right, here we go. Today's show, it's a good one, like they always are. At least I hope that. And for most of what we hear from the listeners... We know that you appreciate the Project Upland podcast. We appreciate you listening, and we enjoy bringing it to you. This one was especially enjoyable. I got to make a trip down to the headquarters of our guest today. They're local, right here in Minnesota. I'd never been there before. It was awesome. I took a tour of the factory and afterwards sat down with three employees of the company, and we chatted all about their business, their products, Stuff that I think is probably going to interest the shotgunner slash upland hunting bird enthusiast. Last week, I went to Federal Ammunition. And my guests today are Ryan Bronson, Dan Compton, and Adam Moser. And a special thanks to my tour guide, Jared Hinton. He didn't join us on the podcast today, but you will be hearing more from him. You'll be hearing more from Jared later this fall as we have a Project Upland slash Federal hunting trip planned. September going west. It's going to be awesome. You're going to see and hear all about it. I'm looking forward to that. But today, the focus is better ammunition. 
story of Federal goes a little something like this. Technology is the lifeblood of Federal ammunition, and it's been pumping through their culture since 1922. That's when founding president Charles L. Horn started a culture of innovation that has guided everything they've done for nearly a century, turning a company that began humbly in Anoka, Minnesota, into one of the world's largest producers of sporting ammunition. I imagine most people listening to this are familiar with Federal Ammunition. I consider it a household name, but again, I've been in the outdoors hunting most of my life. If you haven't heard of Federal, I think you're going to learn a lot today. If you have, I think you will know more about Federal at the end of this podcast than you did before we started. I had a blast. The guys from Federal were great. We got into the weeds. We nerded out on shotgun shells, shots, patterns, all kinds of fun stuff that I think you're going to love. Let's get into today's show. And welcome to the Project Dublin Podcast from Federal Ammunition, Ryan Bronson, Dan Compton, and Adam Moser. And we're live. What's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Dublin Podcast, and we are live and on location at uh, Federal Ammunition headquarters. I just got done touring the facility thanks to... My tour guide, Jared, who will not be joining us on the podcast today, but he is in the room making sure everybody stays in line. So, Jared, thank you for giving me a tour of the facility. I saw a lot of cool stuff today. But Jared has welcomed three additional people from Federal into the room and onto the podcast for the Project Up and listeners. Very excited to have a chat with these gentlemen today. And we're going to start to my left with intros, name, Occupation, what you do for federal, all that fun stuff. Sure. I'm Dan Compton. I'm the product line manager for Shot Shell and Rimfire Ammunition. So product line manager typically means anything product related in the portfolio. So pricing, uh, intro, bringing new products to market, what products, what old products go away, and uh, cover Shot Shell, Rimfire, muzzle loading, and primers. Excellent. Yeah, I'm Adam Moser, uh, product engineering manager for Shot Shell and Rimfire. Um, so we, we own the designs of the new products, the existing products, and sustaining those products in the factory. I'm Ryan Bronson. I'm the director of conservation and public policy for Federal and also uh, uh, bigger corporation, Vista Outdoor. Been with the company for 13 years. I work on state government relations and manage our outreach programs to youth and women and, and all the organizations trying to get more people into our sport and try to legalize number seven shot and number nine shot all over the country for turkey hunting. That's, those are the kinds of things we do. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's kind of been in the news lately. What's, what's going on with that? Well, these guys came up with a new product here in the last couple of years, Tungsten Super Shot uh, in our turkey loads. It's ultra, ultra dense shot. And because it's so dense, we can use shot sizes that are much smaller than what we traditionally had. And a lot of states for a long time had turkey regulations where you could only shoot number four, five, and six shot. That's what a traditional turkey load was. But that was all based around lead ammunition. So using this tungsten ultra-dense shot, we have states that have troubles getting their heads around the idea that you can go out and shoot nine shot, which they think of as you know something you use for skeet, but it'll kill a turkey dead as heck at 60 yards. Um, so we've... I, I work with states and sometimes the legislature, sometimes the wildlife agency, and, and try to get them to change their regulations to kind of catch up with the times, let us bring another non-lead product to market, but frankly, just bring a really effective turkey load that, uh, heck, we can make four tens into turkey loads these days because of that. Uh, 
some great engineering. So we're just working with with states to kind of get caught up to the modern times. Yeah, kind of that classic case of of laws being developed in a, a previous era, and mm-hmm. obviously technology and, and innovation advancing. This is not uh, the Morning Thunder Hunt podcast. This is the Project mm-hmm. Elton podcast. But I don't feel bad uh, talking about turkeys a little bit just because we don't have a Morning Thunder Hunt podcast yet. And I did shoot my first turkey uh, probably 10 days ago. Oh, uh, yeah. Using federal shot, I don't know what. JJ asked me what uh, what it was, but I but I borrowed uh, some five-shot uh, federal load from a, from a buddy of mine, and it worked. I killed my first turkey. Adam, were you involved in the development of TSS? Yeah, yeah. So that was a program we started two years ago, yeah, roughly, ago. Um, with the the notion of of getting the the turkey hunter the most effective product possible on the market. So we had we had a tungsten offering. It was a 15 density tungsten. Um, we knew the hand loaders were were playing with this 18 density product, um, essentially the densest uh, shot you can get in tungsten. So we we started out with the task of of putting the most pellets on a, on a turkey target as possible, and uh, I think we did a pretty effective job of that. We you know it, it lent us into going you know smaller as Ryan alluded to, um, the smallest we had offered was seven shot, um, but because we jumped up uh, in density to that eighteen grams per cc, we decided to start uh, using nine shot and, and exploring those options and smaller payloads, high pellet counts, um, low recoil bunch of different offerings for the consumer so it's a great product to work on and uh super super effective so the factors that are driving the the innovation to go to a smaller shot is because you can maintain the density maintain the energy delivery correct and then you can increase pattern density yep yep so so by going to a more dense material um you then will get um, obviously, besides more energy uh, downrange, more maintained velocity downrange, um, you're allowed to decrease the size of the pellet because the mass stays up with the higher density material. Um, and the smaller that pellet is, the more you'll get into that payload. Okay. So I have to ask the question. I know that TSS, it's a premium premium product, premium shot. So it's obviously more expensive. And when you're talking turkey hunting, you know, you're not shooting as much as, say, an upland bird hunter, but... Mm-hmm. Or, I imagine you guys look at all possibilities and you're always looking to innovate. I mean, is there, are there applications for this in the upland hunting world at some point in the future? I mean, it's obviously very effective. Yeah, potentially there would be. It would just depend on how much are you willing to pay for it. Correct. You know, it's uh, tungsten is, is very expensive. Yeah. Uh, the, the market price on lead, you can buy a 25 pound bag of shot for about $1.20 a pound. Tungsten, you're going to pay 40 bucks a pound. Sure. So So that translates directly into what it costs per shot when you get out into the field. Turkey hunters, you know, don't shoot very often, so they're willing to accept some. But yeah, there's a potential for it. We have a we have a new offering coming in that's kind of pretty cool. Our federal called the Custom Shop, where you take a certain product like that, where maybe it's not you know for the mass market, but you have hunters who want 28 gauge and less recoil and want to be able to reach out and touch a little further for grouse or or quail, and we'll take a smaller volume item like that, run it through the custom shop, basically hand load you the amount you're looking for and send it off to you. So yeah. it's pretty, pretty cool coming around the corner for us. Now that the custom shop, that is something that, uh, uh Jared and JJ and I talked about a little bit before this, and that's uh, very unique. Obviously that's something new for federal. Uh, I think that is, that's going to be of interest to a lot of people that are, you know, maybe shooting a, a gauge, 16 gauge, 28 yeah. gauge, something that's not as common. You're, you're looking for the exact load and shot you want. And that's not open yet, but it's coming possibly later this year. Yeah. The plan is to be mid summer. We'll see if, if that gets pushed out a little bit, but, uh, 
but for the most part, we're planning midsummer. And on the shot shell side, we're doing, ba- you know, for the most part, it's all TSS tungsten loads. Sure. Stuff that we don't have mainline right now. But phase two, phase three going out, what I, I hope, I think what we envision is, you know, maybe potential for bismuth or, or other things that might be niche or double gun loads that are softer. And just, you know, we're going to put ultimately let the consumer tell us once we open the door and we start getting the orders with, Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? And we're going to take that feedback and hopefully be able to roll with it. And then there's a center fire rifle component to that as well, where there's um, cartridges we don't offer today, but we'll do that on a smaller scale. And then potentially certain bullets that we might load 30 at six, but we don't load certain bullet from somebody else. We'll do that on a hand load scale for them. Sure. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, obviously you can see the, that works really well for you guys because you're selling product, but you're also doing market research at the same mm-hmm. time. Like you said, letting your customers determine, you know, where the demand is, yeah. what they're looking for, and maybe get a new product idea out of it. Yeah, as a product line guy, I'm I'm excited for it because sure. we can kind of pilot something. And if the the reception's overwhelming and the scale needs to be risen, we can we can plug that into the facility and go through the standard, you know, process, which is designed for higher volume and higher lot runs. But yeah. but yeah, you'll you'll get that hand you know that hand loaded touch from a. Uh, couple guys down in ballistics lab who will make it for you, put a sticker on it and send it out the door. That's pretty cool. I mean, that is one thing that I had the benefit of seeing today, you know, coming down here to the facility, having Jared walk me around, being able to see the shells, the cartridges, everything being made. And I mean, one thing that JJ pointed out that is somewhat unique to federal, you're taking raw materials and you're, you're ending up with finished products, which doesn't necessarily happen with every company, but, you know, seeing the big pallets and ignits of, of lead and the silos that have the, the plastic in it that become shotgun hulls. I mean, just being able to see that kind of stuff and see it on such a scale, you know, was, was very cool. Obviously, you know, I'm a consumer. I walk into the store and I see the, the shelves full of shotgun shells, but you don't, you might not think at the time that where it comes from and it's right here in Minnesota, which obviously I'm biased. It's, it's my home state, but I, I will never walk in and pick up a box of federal shells and not think of, of this tour. So that was, uh, that was obviously neat. I wish everybody listening to this could have gone on the tour, but, uh, maybe someday they'll get that, they'll get that pleasure. Ryan, uh, before we get too much further, I would be, I'd love to, to share a little bit of the history of federal. Obviously today they're owned by Vista outdoors. Mm-hmm. And, right. and so you can talk about that relationship a little bit, but, but definitely let's get some history because I think many people listening to this are going to be familiar with federal ammunition, but let's put some, some background there. Well, so the history for the company goes back to 1922. That was the year that the, the company was founded. And at the time, they only built shotgun shells. And they were right here in Anoka, Minnesota, where they built the factory. The, uh, the founder was Charles Horn. And the funny thing was the original owner of the company was the Olin Foundation. And people know Olin as the company that owns Winchester. So this was their private charitable foundation that actually owned a competitor. It what ended up becoming a competitor, and now we're, we're bigger than Winchester, uh, you know, 100 years later. So that was how it got started, uh, building... Uh, shot shell. Uh, when you think about that era, 1922, wildlife populations were near all-time lows. So it's kind of it was a funny time to start as a new product because the what drove the ammunition market at the time was hunting. That's that was the number one use. Today, recreational shooting is so much bigger, but at the time, hunting was a big part of it, and that really 
played a big factor in, in the early philosophy of the company and it's carried on till today where conservation was a real priority. So beginning 15 years into the company's uh, tenure, the Pittman-Robertson Act passed and, and federal, as a young company, was lobbying for and supporting that, that act to help fund wildlife conservation and started the 4-H conservation camps back then. And so we've been working with 4-H since 1937 as well on the conservation side. And so the company progressed and got through the 50s and 60s and started loading and centerfire rifle ammunition, 22 ammunition, and today we, we build everything. We, we build, we're the complete line, rimfire, centerfire, and shot shell. And we're all here in Anoka, Minnesota, one factory. We don't have a bunch of factories all over the country. We've got a, a, our sister company, CCI and Spear, which is out in Lewiston, Idaho. But everything that's federal is is right here in Anoka, Minnesota. So that that's pretty cool. We have grown a lot over that time. You know, originally there were a couple of dozen employees. Today we've got about 1,500 people that are working here. Uh, for a long part of the history of the company, we worked eight-hour days, three shifts a day, but we're closed on the weekends. And for more than a decade, probably going on close to 20 years, We've been a 24-hour operation, so this factory never closes uh, except at Christmas, and it's it's operating 24/7. We saw that, you know, in the four four years ago, and you know, for about a decade there, where we couldn't build ammunition fast enough. I mean, we were we were expanding and adding and 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 doing everything we can. But so so the company has been. We're coming up on our hundredth anniversary in 2022. Uh, we're we're very proud of that, and well, I think you'll see a lot of celebrations. But we've got a whole bunch of innovations that that Federal is responsible for. Color coded shot shells is an invention that we came up really? with, and that was all because back in the old days, every shotgun shell was red, and it was easy to put a twenty gauge down a, a twelve gauge, and and it would get it, it would get far enough down where you'd get a, a twenty twelve burst. And so by color coding shotgun shells, we've made it immensely safer everyone has their color codes for their 12 gauge loads but you know the whole industry standard everything's yellow that has improved safety for the consumer a lot that was one of our innovations we've got the best primers in the market uh the way that we build primers is is different than everyone else and that's why we've got such uh innovative and, and effective and hot primers that is an industry standard uh, so there's a whole bunch of things that over time we've we've gotten really good at and I think we're pretty proud of our history, even though we're we're the youngest of the ammunition companies. Winche well, Winchester and Remington are older. There's a couple of upstarts out in Nebraska that are that are a little bit younger, but uh, we've grown, and we are now the largest commercial ammunition manufacturer in the world. That was uh, that was absolutely on display as I walked around the factory. Now I've never been to another ammunition factory, so I have nothing to compare to. But I just know that every time I walked around the corner, there was another expansive, you know, warehouse section and and different work cells and you know people hard at work making ammunition. I mean, there's casings and hulls and stuff going everywhere. It was it was pretty wild. Educate myself a little bit and the listeners with respect to Pittman Robinson, the tax that is on basically shooting sports, ammunition, guns, everything to help wildlife conservation, many other things. It's it's paid by – is it paid by federal or would yeah. it be paid by the the people that are buying ammunition from you? It depends on how you look at it. The okay. check is written by us. Okay. So every quarter we write a check. 
in uh, together with our with our other ammunition companies and, and our sister company Savage Arms, uh, we have been averaging as a company Vista Outdoor. We've been averaging eighty million dollars a year that we pay in Pittman Robertson taxes. That's a tax that every ammunition manufacturer has to pay, every firearm manufacturer has to pay, every archery company has to pay. And it's not any other products. So a lot of times when people talk about Pittman-Robertson, they think any hunting product pays that tax. And that's not true. Guns, ammo, archery gear. Those are the only products that have that tax on it. And that is the biggest funder of conservation uh, funding in the country. Is It comes from Pittman-Robertson. But it's an 11% tax. It's assessed on the manufacturer. So we have to write a... We, we have to write a check to the IRS every quarter for what we sold that that quarter, what we built and sold. And then the IRS turns it over to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a, has a formula where they allocate it to the states based on how big the state is and how many hunting licenses they sell. And then the states can only use it for certain things. They can use it for wildlife management, so it can pay for the population monitoring and things like that. It can pay for habitat projects that are for wildlife and publicly accessible for hunters. They can It pays for hunter education, and it can pay for shooting range expansion. And we recently got some legislation through Congress, uh, the shooting range bill, that's going to enable states to be more flexible with their funding to, to build more shooting ranges. And one of the things we've seen with like youth clay shooting programs is we're running out of capacity for places to shoot clay pigeons uh, you know on a Wednesday night after school for, for team practice and so so that's that's really important. Pittman Robertson helps contribute to all of those things. It dwarfs the land and water conservation fund it dwarfs almost every other source of funding uh, out there short of con- the conservation reserve program for putting dollars in the ground and it's the underpinning for wildlife management in, in the country so state wildlife agencies get their Pittman Robertson allocation every year they're limited in what they can spend it on. And it has to be commingled with their hunting license dollars. And that actually protects the hunting license dollars from getting raided by state legislatures. Mm-hmm. Because if a, if a state legislature tries to take, you know, deer license fees or, or pheasant stamp money for something else, the Fish and Wildlife Service can come and take the federal aid back. That's a really big stick that is that has really created a funding system in this country that I think hunters should be proud of. They need to know about it. A lot of hunters don't know about it. Uh, a lot of shooters don't know how much they're contributing to wildlife conservation right. as well. But it, it's been successful, it's sustainable, and it's really a model I think that the rest of the outdoor recreation world should try to emulate. People don't pay a tax on their Patagonia gear to go hiking. But they paid for their rifle and they paid for their shotgun and they paid for their shotgun shells. That's helping pay for conservation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, very, very well put and uh, I definitely learned a thing or two. On the, I believe, I recall hearing about the the shooting range bill, the legislation on an episode of the Mediator podcast. Mm-hmm. Would that have been, was the guy from the National Sh- Council for National Shooting Sports? I don't recall. I don't know if you heard it or not. but Yeah, I remember they did an episode. I don't remember who, he, I don't remember who he had. Oh, it was, might have been Nephi Cole from National Shooting Sports Foundation that okay. was, was involved in that. But uh, yeah, it's, the mediator has talked about it. It's, it's been a high priority for the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is our trade group that represents the gun and ammo manufacturers. Because, especially as we look at our three issues, the endangered species that I think most of us are most concerned about for funding conservation for the future 
is hunters. And the critical habitat for hunters or shooters is shooting ranges. You can't practice with your shotgun in most places in this country unless you have a shooting range to go to. Rifle, pistol, whatever you're shooting, uh, ranges are where people shoot their guns, become proficient, but it's also where they're generating the Pittman-Robertson dollars that pays for wildlife conservation. So I think anything we can do to promote more shooting ranges is good for wildlife conservation. The two, the two things are just, they're inextricably tied. Yeah. That's the wildlife biologist coming out of you, drawing those parallels. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, my salary used to come from Pittman Robertson when I worked for Minnesota DNR, so yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll keep you on the line here for, for another minute, Ryan. You know, talking about R3, and obviously, I think as a Minnesotan, I have definitely seen the impact and the growth of the high school clay target shooting leagues, trap shooting, um, and see that as a real positive, you know, getting a lot of kids through those leagues, getting their gun safety done, getting proper, safe, good handling of a firearm. I mean, as, as a guy that's heavily invested in upland hunting and wanting to recruit people into upland hunting, you know, that's a, that's a talent pool that a lot of conservation organizations, Fez Forever, RGS, all of them tr- are trying to figure out, you know, how do we tap that and how do we give those kids a direct avenue into hunting? Um, as you say, you know, hunters, hunter numbers have, have been dwindling and that's obviously a concern of, of all of ours and, and certainly of, of federals. How do you guys involve yourself? Cause I know you're involved. How do you involve yourself with, with those, that league and, and that, those initiatives? So I'd, I'd mentioned that we've been involved with 4-H since the thirties where when we were involved with conservation camps beginning in the 1980s, uh, 4-H shooting sports program became a, a national effort. And my predecessor here at Federal was a gentleman by the name of Bill Stevens. I grew up here in Minnesota as well, wildlife biologist uh, of the University of Minnesota. He helped found, helped found together with the NRA and some other industry leaders the 4-H shooting sports program, which really is kind of a, a precursor to what we're seeing today, uh, where it's a organization built through 4-H all over the country where Kids are learning the different shooting sports disciplines, and 300,000 kids shoot in that program a year, and a lot of people don't know about it. The high school clay target program here started here in Minnesota, but it's expanded to a lot of places. Uh, it, it's taken it to the next level for those specific clay target sports, primarily trap. Uh, but the fact that it's gotten into high schools um, and it's helping build a system with, with teams where that mainstreams it. Because if you can earn a letter in trap shooting, that makes it a regular part of your life, and it, it, it that mainstreams it. That's a, such an important thing from a cultural standpoint. They're not the only youth shooting sports program out there. This classic clay target program and ATA, the, the Amateur Trap Shooters Association, has their AIM program. There's a lot of them out there. But the high school program has really caught the fire, I think, because it's – School by school, mainstream, just like any other sport. Um, I like the idea that, you know, growing up we talked about soccer moms, and today we've got trap shooting moms. <laughs> you know, that's a great advent for our sport. And one of the things that's great about it is to, to participate in that program, you have to take hunter safety. You have to have your hunter ed card. Well, now you have taken two of the big hurdles to get into hunting, you know, and you've, you've, you've achieved those. Getting hunter ed certified is 
That's you know that doesn't just happen. That takes work and effort. Yep. And then learning how to shoot a shotgun. Shooting sports skills are not skills that you pick up other places. And learning how to shoot uh, at a trap range uh, through that program, you've taken a lot of the big steps that's going to help you go, get to the next level. And I'm hoping that uh, high school clay target programs, when a kid wants to take the weekend off and go duck hunting or go grouse hunting or go pheasant hunting, that they're not saying, no, you got to come to practice. <laughs> and I believe that I, I get the sense that that's the culture, you know, that, uh, that those, that those participants, boys and girls, and the percentage of girls in the high school programs is much higher than it is in the general hunting population. That's an opportunity to recruit. So it, it gives me a lot of hope for the future, but whether they become hunters or not, when they're pulling the trigger on that trap range, they're paying Pittman Robertson taxes, which mm-hmm. is helping fund wildlife agencies, which is helping make sure that there's, there's birds out in the field. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of positives to that. I mean, I certainly, uh, I, I wish that there was, uh, there was that when I was coming up through high school, I'm having to learn how to shoot at 33 years old, no but <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting better at it, you know, year by year, little by little, but, uh, no, it's, it's, uh, that is a very, very positive thing. And I knew that federal was involved with it and, and I imagine you will continue to be. Yeah. The biggest thing that we do is we, you know, we, we actually support the leagues and help support the shoots, but the biggest thing we do is we work with teams to get them discounted ammunition just because we view that as an opportunity. It's like a coupon for the future that if we can get kids, instead of going out and shooting one round a week, they shoot two rounds a week and get better. Then we think that they will be customers for life. And then they'll be going into Walmart and Cabela's and Shields and every other retailer in the country and, and buying shotguns and shotgun shells. Not just this year, but for the next 50 years, because shooting sports is a lifetime sport. You're just as likely to be doing it when you're 65 as when you're 15. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dan and Adam, you know, kind of bring you guys in here a little bit. The, you know, I know well enough to know that upland hunting is not always the front and center of, uh, you know, driving the market, you know, with ammunition or guns or anything. But obviously, federal cares about upland hunters. You make products for upland hunters. Talk a little bit about kind of what are the offerings for upland hunters uh, as a, you know, aside from just somebody going in and grabbing a box of seven and a half shot 20 gauge. To, to kind of frame that, like you say, it's not front and center, but how how we look at the products mm-hmm. and categories, you know, we divide it into, you, you got waterfall hunting, you have big game hunting, you have upland hunting, you have turkey hunting. And then we look within that group and we say, what do we need to do to win there? Yeah. So we do try to focus on every area and, 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 and have an offering. So that's kind of how we go about it. So it may not be the biggest, you know, like turkey hunting, not a lot of volume, not a lot of volume. It may not be the biggest, but we wanted to have the biggest, baddest shell, so we went after the TSS market. So sure. in Upland, we've tried to do the same thing. Um, historically, the you know basic lead loads, and then that worked in the copper-plated loads, uh, buffered. That all went for a while. Uh, you know, did well for a, a, quite a long time. Um, about ten years ago, we launched Prairie Storm, which really is probably one of the most I don't know, the strongest following of any load we have between Blackclaw and Prairie Storm. We have, we're probably one of the hardcore user groups that people keep coming back to it. We've worked the Pheasant Fest every year and people just tell you how much they love Prairie Storm. Yep. So we've got that. So I guess my point is we kind of have something, everything under the sun, whether it's 28 gauge through 12 for upland hunting. We've got anything from your basic price point load all the way up to something premium like Prairie Storm. And then we're expanding a lot more into more lead-free offerings too, as well as we're seeing states and public lands go to that and just conscientious hunters who are just choosing to go that route. Yep. Well, so. yeah, that's definitely, uh, you know, we've, we've had some articles on 
non-tox, lead-free, alternative shot, whatever you want to call it. We've mm-hmm. had that on, on Project Dumpin, and we see, you know, we see responses, you know, basically on both, end, both ends of the spectrum, but the reality is there are absolutely people, I know I hunt with some of them, that, that are choosing to hunt with a lead-free shot because they want to, and obviously the increase in, in options and availability is a good thing, as a consumer. And mm-hmm. so I, I was paging through the new, uh, the new product guide for 2019 federal. And one of those is uh, upland steel. That's a, uh, that's a new load. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we have, so we've had steel in the lineup, you know, for, right. for, for, for quite a while. Um, a lot of what we, sh- a lot of what we offered for a long time was here's a duck hunting load and go ahead and use that and shoot that at upland birds. So mm-hmm. with products like, like upland steel or prairie storm. So we try to make something a little more catered to the use. Um, an interesting about prairie storm steel, a lot of people aren't aware that we, we make it, but we do. But the, the design behind that was by offering three and four shot at 1600 feet per second, it was the equivalent of that number five lead load you shot at 1330 in terms of lead and in terms of energy you put down. So those are things we try to put into it, but we realized that steel does cost a little bit more, you know, in terms yeah. of loaded, uh, ammunition. So upland steel is more of a price point product that we tried to get on the market for one to be competitive with some of our competitors, but also, you don't always maintain the same performance as you do with lead when you go to a non-lead alternative sure. because of the density uh, part that Adam was talking about. So what can we do to, to still give you a good pattern and still, and then you don't have to break the bank to go up because you're probably going to shoot more than your average, you know, yep. hunter does when you go up in upland hunt. So upland steel is 20 gauge, 12 gauge offerings uh, in six and seven and a half, which is a true seven and a half. So you can take that to a lot of trap ranges and shoot as well. We were pretty conscientious of that. If you want to take a sporting clay shooting or, or whatnot. Um, and then it's just to help not break the pocketbook as much. Sure. Yeah. So. Adam, I wonder, could you kind of, could you walk us through a little bit, you know, when we, when we pick up a box of shotgun shells, we've got the classic, you know, whether it's two and three quarters, you got shot size, you got velocity. Can you kind of just walk through that a little bit and kind of just give us give us the high level and how they how they relate to each other? Sure. <clears throat> so um, obviously you're going to have your designation for gauge, um, depending on what shotgun you're shooting. You're going to have your payload weight in ounces. Usually is what people will recognize that in whether it's a one ounce, an ounce and an eighth, ounce and a quarter. Um, velocity and shot size. So. Um, when you're when you're looking for uh, maybe an upland application, you're probably looking in that around an ounce and an eighth or one ounce loads. Um, but really, you know, the velocity aspect is is driven by that payload weight. So as loads begin to come heavier and heavier, the velocity will typically decrease a little bit, um, just because we are limited in how much pressure we can generate within that gun chamber. So as you get to these really big, heavy, heavy hitting loads, um, they tend to come down a little bit in velocity. So you know, we can push a one ounce at you know. 1350 or 1450 whereas if you get up into those ounce and a half or those real big magnum loads you will see that velocity come down um but you know depending on what you're going after and what you're hunting um that will dictate your shot size if you're after you know grouse uh, versus a pheasant you're gonna you're gonna pick the applicable shot size so maybe a five versus a seven and a half um in lead loads so it, it yeah you have to go to the store with your intent in mind of what yep. you're going to be after and then pick your your loads accordingly and so as we're talking about, you know, potentially people making the choice to start shooting a lead-free ammunition, what are 
they're used to you know, they're used to their standard lead mm-hmm. load. They're going to go to steel. What should they be thinking about as far as shot size and velocity? Yeah, good question. So kind of the rule of thumb that we use to, to tell the consumer is if you're used to shooting lead, um, go two shot sizes bigger into steel to get, you know, comparable energy and velocities um, and knock down power. So if you're if you're used to shooting a six, you know, maybe go down to a four in a steel. So that'll that'll be as a general rule of thumb. Um, a good thing to follow. Okay. And then I know in this, in the Upland steel load, you are offering a seven and a half shot, mm-hmm. but it's, it's also kicked up to a higher velocity. So right. you're maintaining a little bit of that. energy. Yeah. So we, we compensate for that loss in density with the increased velocity. So as everybody knows, the kinetic energy is based on the velocity um, and the mass of the shot. So as that mass of that shot goes down, we have to kick that velocity up to get that energy down range. And steel being less dense, it's going to slow down quicker. Correct. Right. But yep. what kind of, you know, like where, where is that velocity measurement taken? And is it right at the barrel or is it, yeah. Don't they do it differently in Europe? I think. Uh, I heard that so, somewhere. so the, the, uh, muzzle velocity per SAMI definition is measured at three feet from the muzzle. Okay. So when we're building these loads in the factory and testing them, that standard measurement is chronographs are set out and that center point is at three feet from the muzzle. Okay. And so again, steel slowing down quicker, is that, is it on like a, a rising scale? Is it slowing down faster and faster as it gets further away, or is it more of a straight line decrease? Um, yeah, it would be more parabolic, I guess, um, as it starts to decay. Um, that line, it's not a linear line of decay, I gotcha. would say. I guess it's it becomes somewhat uh, parabolic in, in its decay. But okay, The analogy I try to give people to think about, you know, shot, comparison is think of a ping pong ball and think of a golf ball they're both about the same diameter both both about the same size think of the ping pong ball as being the lighter material like steel in the in the golf ball being lead or or something else and just think how they perform think about how when you throw them you know what what they do you know or when you Mm -hmm. hit them Mm -hmm. that that's a way to help though that's an extreme comparison correct yeah correct but it's a it's a way to help get that concept in in your mind yeah, yeah i use tennis balls and baseballs all the time you there know, you go it's kind of the yep. same you can both throw them pretty decently yep. you know but the baseball is just gonna it's gonna carry its energy further yeah so that's yeah. kind of i've used that with lead and tungsten all the time yeah that's a great yeah. way to to help people visualize what's going on i mean you know is there as far as effective range of steel i mean mm-hmm. you guys look into that i mean is there yeah, it's definitely considered. Um, you know, we do we have different means of doing it, whether it's pellet energy calculations or or physically going and shooting a block of ballistics gelatin and seeing okay. how far it can penetrate at different yardages. Um, of course, pattern density comes into play too. Um, you know, it, it may be able to penetrate a certain depth, but if it if it doesn't have a dense enough pattern with enough pellets on target, it's not going to matter how how deep it penetrates. So all those factors are definitely considered. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that we necessarily tell a consumer it's effective to this yardage and right. that's its max range, but right. um, we, we kind of know their capabilities. So I'm, I'm going on the, the ping pong ball, golf ball, Ryan, here, and, and I'm thinking, is steel generally not as good of patterning for obvious reasons because it's lighter and it's going to flail around or is that not the case? Well, so there are, there are different things you can you can do to, to combat the densities, but I mean... On that same analogy, um, something that is heavier and denser will tend to fly more true. Um, so I would say, as a as a rule of thumb, uh, steel could have the the um, 
the susceptibility to going off course a little bit easier than a, a more dense product would. Sure. Um, but there are things we can do to the wad and things we can do to the shot to make sure it's, you know, as best as it can be and, and fly as true as possible. Um, of course, lead has a disadvantage that it deforms, so it's not perfectly spherical like steel is. And there's yeah. just different pros and cons to each one, but they're, uh, they're designed and, and loaded and built to, to be as effective as possible. Yeah. So it's, but, but that, that answers my question really is that there are pros and cons to both. It's not a clear right. know, one yeah, of one versus the other. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that brings up some, some, uh, another interesting question that I have and kind of get down to the weeds here, which I think is perfect because we got the right people in the room for it. Um, there is a lot of, tradition i don't know if that's the right word but as far as standard payload for a specific gauge whether it's three quarter ounce and a 28 gauge seven eighths and a 20 ounce for 16 and an ounce and an eighth and 12 gauge Mm -hmm. i have heard that a lot of that was sort of developed a long time ago and today most people that are buying shotgun ammunition know that you can buy you know i can go out and buy a one ounce in a 28 gauge uh I have heard that, you know, modern ammunition sort of negates some of that old square load talk in theory. Um, can you, can you talk about that a little bit as sure. far as kind of like what, what has technology done for ammunition that allows you to create, you know, a higher payload in a, sure. a specific gauge? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, like everything, there's advancements, there's advancements in propellants, there's advancements in materials, in wads, um, in shot types. Uh, so, so as things progress and we and we get better and smarter and and propellants that are capable of you know launching a 28 gauge at you know uh, one ounce of 28 gauge at 1250 yep. you know where you're not limited to that three quarter ounce anymore. Um, the, so the you, you mentioned square load. Mm-hmm. Um, there there is some truth in that. Um, like efficiency wise on how well your shotgun patterns, the the better you maintain. Uh, a smaller L over D so that your, your payload is, is about as tall as it is wide. It, it, it is patterns more efficiently. So if you think of a 410, very skinny, very tall mm-hmm. shot column tends to pattern less efficient than a 12 gauge one ounce load would just on how many pellets are in that payload and how many hit the target when I shoot it. The 410 is generally not going to perform as well as a 12 gauge load. Um, and we actually did a, a pretty fairly in-depth study for an article in, in field and stream a few years back that compared the bore diameter versus the pattern efficiency. And it was mostly directly linear in, in going from 410 up through 28, 20, 16, 12, 10. And that line of efficiency was, was almost right on par. Um, so as those loads became you know, not as tall and narrow, the L over D came down, the pattern efficiency went up. So were in that article, were you, sh- were you shooting the same, same payload in we, each gauge? We were trying to, you know, same shot size, same velocity, yep. um, and then standard payloads for those gauges. So whether that's a 11 sixteenths and a 410 or a one and an eighth ounce and a 12 gauge, we kind of picked the, the bread and butter for each gauge and, and compared them to each other. Sure. And I believe we even did it with, you know, lead and steel, um, to get that baseline. Okay. Yeah. I've looked at it. Like y- you talk to hunters who shoot 10 gauge and mm-hmm. they're like, I shoot the lights out every time I shoot 10 gauge. If you look at the payloads and velocities, it's not a lot different from a 12 gauge, three and a half, you know, they're almost the same. Right. And the 12 gauge, three and a half is pretty much crippled the 10 gauge for forever because you can, you can buy it in a 12 gauge and you can use it's so much more diverse, but 10 gauge is patterned so much more efficiently. So you're not necessarily have more power, 
Yep. You're putting more pellets in a tighter space. Yep. You know, so, and a 410 kind of goes the other way. 410 is kind of hard to hit with because now you got a little more open pattern. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I try, the way we try to explain what's going on to people is you've got this interaction of a bunch of pellets stacked on top of each other and you've got a big force pushing these pellets. So as they come out of the barrel, um, you've got these spheres. If you think of a cue ball hitting a, a you know, a rack of a pool balls, the balls kind of go everywhere when you hit them. Um, we kind of try to use that analogy and, and have people understand that you've got these forces pushing through these pellets. And when they come unreleased from the barrel, they kind of want to go in all different directions. Whereas you have, you know, a more of an even load, square load. Um, they're kind of more uniformly pushing on each other and you don't have as much of those outside pellets losing, you know, losing away from the pattern. So, yeah. So based on the data, a one ounce twelve gauge load is more efficient than a one ounce twenty eight gauge load. Correct, yes. exactly. So I hear that a lot. That from breaks folks. my heart, Ryan. <laughs> so, now I, I know a lot of people that are convinced that they they shoot their twenty eight better than they shoot their twelve, and they probably do. Yeah. They probably mm-hmm. shoot because of recoil and other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you shoot it, look, we can do the science, but. The shooter's got a lot of voodoo in there, and and it's all between their ears. Yes. And if you think that you're shooting it better, then shoot that. Right. Because if you think you're shooting it better, you will shoot it better. Because part of of Mm -hmm. shooting success is is confidence and, and things. So we hear that a lot. We pause this episode of the podcast for just a moment to let you know that today's show is also brought to you by Trinity Kennels, home of the Apanuel Breton. Trinity Kennels French Brittany Spaniels are from champion bloodlines, field tested and family approved for over 30 years. Coming from the most prestigious and elite French bloodlines as well as American champions, Trinity Kennels is committed to producing premier Apanuel Bretons for the field trialer and foot hunter alike. We now return to the Project Upland podcast. So I think one of the things with the turkey loads, what I'm hearing hunters think more about is instead of just thinking in the raw ounces of shot, they're thinking about the number of pellets. Mm -hmm. Turkey hunters want to know that. I mean, we've, if we've got a pellet, if we've got a a load, a turkey load that doesn't have the same number of pellets that we say it should have, we will get calls from consumers who have have cut open the shell and counted pellets, you know, without shooting it, or they've shot a target and counted holes in the target and they'll know. I mean, we, we hear from those folks and, and it's important. So the number of pellets in, in a payload is an important consideration because a one ounce steel load and a one ounce lead load, if they're the same shot size, have drastically different pellet counts. Yeah. And the number of pellets is a big part of that. Yeah, you'll actually see that on our website going forward. Uh, probably later in the year, that's one of the new fields we're going to put on there is the number of pellets within a payload because yeah. it is becoming such a common question and, I, it, and it shows i will get people that will come up to me and tell me that why why aren't you saying how many dram equivalents that load is I'm like we said how we said what the velocity is <laughs> which is a more relevant correct you know term i mean yeah. i can't explain you to you exactly what a dram equivalent is it's based on some english system from the 1600s or something yeah it was it's it is crazy it was, it's you know the drams is a measurement of mass of propellant that it took to get that weight of payload to a certain velocity so if you think of a 12 gauge one and an eighth ounce three dram load then people know oh that's 1200 feet per second well we tell you it's 1200 feet per second so what do you need that dram for mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and that was based on Older powders, yep. I imagine, as well. Yep. So I think that, primary black powder. Yeah, black Because yeah. you had one choice, so it made a lot more sense. Yep. Burn rates on powders vary significantly. A lot of people are surprised that, well, and, and the 
it's kind of intuitive if you're a hand loader that there's more than one powder option for every mm-hmm. recipe we mm-hmm. have. And that helps us quite a bit in case there's, we run out of a certain supply and there's a primary, but you know, different powders rate, but just because switch you to powder, now your grains is going to change because it's got different burn characteristics. Yeah. Inside, yeah. So. And we're loading to pressure and velocity. Yeah. Because we might use three different powders for the same load based on what's available in the marketplace. Cause we're loading it by the millions. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not using one can of powder uh, for the next, six years mm-hmm. and so we're loading and that's a much more reliable thing to know is you know pressure velocity pellet count yep. those those because that's what if, if if those are the same every time that means what's coming out of the end of your barrel is performing the same every time and that's what we measure mm-hmm. every day another thing with different with the gauges and just mm-hmm. different materials too is uh, choke tubes have come an awful long way and that you know it's something we take when we work on developing new loads and uh, the, the choke tube is one of the primary things. What are we going to test through now? And especially on sub-gauge, to see more options in 28-gauge and 410 is has been huge. Because now, you know, maybe that 410 doesn't always pattern as efficiently through your standard full, but somebody's now creating something that's going to help that do better. You know, like uh, like Jeb's or Rhino in a 410, you know, yep. which is making it just shoot lights out, you know. Yep. So. Yeah, that was an interesting thing that I that I did pick up on the factory tour. You know, again, a lot of the stuff that that Jared pointed out to me very logical when you think about it, but you just wouldn't think about it being a consumer walking in a store. But Federal's buying so much powder that you're not necessarily getting the same exact powder every time. So just because that that box that I'm buying at the store is the same thing that I'm used to buying, it's gonna it could have slightly different ingredients, but that's the whole point of this facility here. They're the quality control and the testing that you're doing to make sure that you maintain those pressures, velocity, everything. I mean, there's a lot that goes into the box of shotgun shells that I'm putting in my vest. Yeah. We don't think of it in how many grains of red dot is in that load. You know, we're thinking of the powder charge that's in there. What velocity is that generating? Is it, is it within our spec so that what's coming out of the end of the muzzle does the same thing with the box that we built today as the box that we built 10 years ago in the same load? That's what we want. We want repeatability. And uh, so, so oftentimes, well, well, what's your recipe? Well, I mean, we've got a bunch of recipes. <laughs> uh, the important thing that you need to know is that what you buy today is, was the same as it was last year, and it'll be the same next year in that load. Yeah. Yeah, unless you guys say otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of innovation. But yeah, that's uh, the the pellet count thing. I think that is a neat thing, and I I'm happy to kind of know that we'll, we'll might see that going forward because I think that's kind of like you start, you know, seven eighth ounce a shot of six shot. You know, I over time you sort of generally have an idea of what that is, but to actually see the pellet count number mm-hmm. that gives you a real idea of pattern density, especially if you get out like you should and like nobody does enough including myself pattern your own shotgun because there's you know we all got you got to know what's what's coming out of the end of your barrel uh but to know how many pellets there are and see what kind of density you're getting at a given range i mean that's obviously doing a lot of good for people to know what what we're putting through them yeah we've always had a chart in our catalog but you know not everybody's got access to sure. the, to the catalog so i think it's 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 good you'll find in in this day and age consumers so much more you know educated than they ever have and they have so many more tools you know but there's still a lot of room for us to to give more and put more out there for them yeah so i guess possibly a question for you adam i mean what what is i guess it would be everybody you know whether it's whether it's consumer demand but what is bringing what is going to create a new offering for upland hunting from concept theory and bring it to market? I mean, what are those, what are those driving factors 
that that would do it? Is it going to be technology? Is it going to be consumer demand? Probably a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of it starts with well, kind of. That's part of my job. Sure. Is so in 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 our role as product line manager, we're the voice of the customer. You know, so a lot of that comes from from use. You know, we try to we we all try to get out in the field as much as we can. Yeah. Um, if we hear things, you know, Ryan's really good about catching trends. You know, the 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 media and our PR guys like Jared here, they they feed us stuff all the time because. I, I kind of like the writers because they think outside the box a little bit because they're trying to be creative. Sure. You know, they're trying, what if we had this? And we get that an awful lot. So it's kind of putting all that together and then seeing what where the product landscape is. And then you say, okay, there's there's that hole. There's that one thing we don't do. You know. And then I, I explain to people, our, our, my relationship with Adam either goes two ways. It's either I go to him and say, hey, we can sell this or we need this. Can you develop it? Or they bring ideas to us and say, hey, we have this new technology. Can you guys sell that? Yeah. And it goes both ways. And one of the, we have good relationships too, and we try to have a very open door to inventors that bring mm-hmm. us ideas. You have a lot of people who come up with things. They just maybe don't have the, the scale or the equipment to test it out. So they'll bring us concepts and, and then we'll help vet that. We'll help fund it. And, uh, and a lot of the innovations you see in our catalogs come from, from those type of people. So mainly it starts with, with the finding the need. Does it fit within our portfolio? Is it something that we, we think there's a good market for? And then I work with the, the development team like Adam and, yep. and then they get very specific on the requirements. You yeah. know? So what are you looking for? Do you need it to how pattern, how tight do you need it to pattern? What gauges do we need to offer? What shot sizes do you need? What material do you need? And then what price point are we trying to go after? And yeah. then he takes the reins and runs with it after that. Yeah. I'm going to backtrack a little bit on the subject of patterning. I know that you guys do some, and we've kind of talked about, you know, patterning is different in every gun, every mm-hmm. gun, every choke, every load. I mean, we all owe it to ourselves to, to pattern our own shotguns with each kind of ammunition. What what could we learn from the crew here at Federal about patterning, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's tips, pointers, how can we do it better? What sure. What do you guys look for? Well, I guess from an industry standard, um, 40 yards is, is where we test at. That's kind of the norm. Um, Sammy recognizes that. Uh, I guess the procedure is to shoot um, 10 rounds is what we do. I mean, I don't expect every consumer to do that, but we have the equipment and the, and the facilities and the, and the personnel to we're, do we're it. We're trying to sell ammo. Here, so. <laughs> <laughs> so encourage them to shoot 10 yeah. Um, Always 10. Yeah. <laughs> but what it is, is, is measuring. Um, so starting out with knowing how many pellets are in your, in your shell, okay. um, shooting it at 40 yards onto a pattern board or a piece of paper or whatever you have available, and then assessing how many pellets hit the target. And what we measure is a 30 inch circle. And within that 30 inch circle, what is my efficiency? So did 75% of my pellets fall in? Did 50%? Did 90%? Um, so depending on the application and the choke, obviously, um, that's, that's what we recommend, uh, if you're if you're going to be hunting, you know, grouse or something that's going to be, you know, a closer shot, you're going to want to, you know, maybe pattern at closer distances with more open chokes just to see what your pattern looks like, see what your maybe your kill zone is, um, where you have holes, um, and then. But if you're if you're hunting late season pheasants or something that's going to be, you know, flushing further away, you're going to want to constrict it down and and shoot at further distances. So, I guess that's our standard. Um, you know, with turkey loads, though, we're, we're doing something completely different. We're not necessarily focused on the 30-inch circle. That turkey guy wants to know what's in that 10-inch circle at 40 yards. So we're trying to put everything we can in a spot as small as possible. So two different, uh, you know, two different objectives, I guess, two different products, and, and we test accordingly. Yeah. So one thing that I see with, with patterning is the typical way to pattern is you, you aim your shotgun at the patterning board, pull the trigger, 
and then not everybody mounts their gun and looks down that rib the same way they do as when they take the time and aim it. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that that's absolutely a valuable thing to know with what your your gun's mm-hmm. capable of doing. But then when you're part of patterning should be have the patterning board up, have yourself at the distance, and then pull up. Mount the gun, fo- stay focused on the target, not stopping to look and aim at the bead, and pull the trigger and see where your pattern hits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you might learn that you're mounting the gun a little bit lower than when you aim it, and so that it ends up shooting higher. And so those are things to know. Um, one, to, it, it might help you correct some some things in your form that you're shooting or it helps you just accommodate that yeah that you you might have to float the target above your bead yeah. when you when you're out there hunting and those are things that you can learn but you only learn those by seeing where your gun actually yep. hits on a patterning board that's a great point too and, and kind of to add to that is every shotgun does shoot in a different location so yep. knowing where your point of aim and point of impact is is critical in that you know does does my gun shoot high does it shoot low does it shoot a little bit you know one way or the other um that you don't learn unless you you take the time to shoot it uh from a rest i thought it would be great if we could take like come up with like a drone and then hang like a paper target below it and have the drone fly by (laughs) so we actually have to practice the lead or come up with some sort of shooting event where the targets went by i think we'd all be pretty surprised like where you're hitting the target you know i went uh Got to go sea duck hunting one time, and they're flying low, and they're flying along the water, and it was pretty humbling yep. because <laughs> you realize you're about four yards back you know, oh, yeah. from, from the <laughs> bird, so it helps you correct, but I think most people shoot you know, behind. I, yeah. I really do, so I I lean towards, when we talk about shell selection, I usually lean a little towards faster shells, but sure. it all comes with, with practice, and you know, yeah, like you said, we've, we all talk about patterning, but it just seems like it's rarely, rarely practiced as as effectively or as much as it should be. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and well, one load, your lead load may be different from your steel load. Sure. So, so you should try both. Yeah. I didn't see the drone thing on the tour today, so maybe next time I'm <laughs> we here. gotta we gotta figure that out. <laughs> we are in the city limits of uh, Anoka, uh, Rapids, yeah, so but yeah. this might be an offsite uh, team building event sometime. But um, Adam, Dan brings up an interesting point. Maybe we got an analogy for this. Is there uh, a standard for, let's say you increase or decrease in a hundred feet per second velocity. Is that going to, you know, with respect to the timing that that pellet is going to get to a certain spot as it translates to lead. And I'm saying this kind of facetiously because I, <laughs> we've talked about, I I just interviewed Andy Duffy on, on wing shooting and, and really when we're talking upland hunting, upland birds, look at the target, well, you're going to shoot, you know, don't be thinking about sustained lead and that kind of stuff, specifically with upland hunting. But from your perspective as, as the, you know, the, the engineer, like is, are there some standards there? As far as distant leads and distances and that type of stuff? Yeah. And like, and like Velocities. what you, what you gain or lose with a certain velocity. Um, I mean, I don't think there's any, you know, exact science to it. Um, it's going to depend on how far away is the bird, how sure. fast is the bird flying, what type of bird is it, what's your payload, velocity, etc. Um, I mean, I guess the one thing that's just common sense, and so it's probably not worth saying, but, you know, the faster the load, the less lead you're going to need. Correct. Um, but as far as, you know, calculating that lead um, versus the the matrix would get so large that I don't know, be a little mm-hmm. bit mind boggling. Yeah. You know, no bird velocity and distance and direction and angle and you know, payloads and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I know I shoot better when I'm reacting more than. Oh yeah. That, 
I've missed two and have to go for, try to get that third one yes. on a duck, you know, yeah. and I usually blow that one too, because now I'm <laughs> way overthinking it, you know, yep. but, but yeah, so I think you're right. Like point and shoot and you get a feel for, for, for what you're doing. Yeah. That, it, both of the shooting instructors we've had on here, you know, I think they both had a different way of saying it, but essentially the bird that you're most likely going to kill is the one that surprises you and you don't have enough time. You know, it's okay to have a little bit of time mm-hmm. to think. You know, like I was actually, I was, I was having a beer with a buddy last night and was kind of saying there's this perfect sweet spot where you got just enough heads up, you know, to, to hear or see the bird in the air, but then you're shooting, you know, you don't have any more time to overthink it. And, and as Andy Duffy said, ride it like a pony and and shoot behind it or, or (laughs) way out in front of it kind of thing. If, If you see a lot of experienced sporting clay shooters, and I've shot with a few, sometimes you have that real long target that starts a long ways away and you have to wait for it to get to you, you know, and what I've heard them say is let that target develop and that, and you'll notice they're not mounting their gun. They're not pointing at it. They're waiting until it's getting to about, you know, if, if, if it's target, you want to break it 35 yards, they're waiting until it's at 45 yards and they're pulling up mountain and and shooting. They're not riding that target because I mean, you either have to be a really good shooter or a really bad shooter to ride a target a long time and break it. Yeah. So in, in all likelihood, you're probably a really bad shooter. <laughs> so, do you guys look at shot string at all? Yeah, we do. We have we've done quite a bit of work on shot string and, and correlating it to patterns and shot type, pellet size. Um, so you know how we typically do that actually is with high speed photography and uh, yeah. measuring that as it as it passes by the camera. Um, you know, just general rules of thumb, maybe again, sounds kind of common sense, but, uh, the larger the shot size, the shorter the shot string, the less the pellets, you know, have a tendency to slow down. So the closer they stay to one another, um, yeah. And then as far as, you know, pattern density, I think there's maybe some correlations to be had there between shorter shot strings and, and more dense patterns, um, too, as you, as you think out like a 410, again, is going to be one of the worst ones for, for shot string length, just in that starting shape, uh, big L over D, yep. um, and then low efficiency. So it's, some people like to use like the, the drafting or the NASCAR analogy of like, you know, the pellets that are, you know, when they're tightly together, they can kind of draft behind one another. Well, you know, it's got such a small diameter in 410 that there's not much room for pellets to draft and they can kind of get away from each other and, and scatter off course. Um, but yeah, we definitely have looked at all sorts of things um, as far as patterns go. So the, it was, that was almost where I was kind of going when I was asking you about the velocity of, of different shots and raising or lowering it. But from a, and maybe you can't answer this question, but, but typical upland ranges, let's say 40 yards and less, just for the sake of discussion, does shot string matter? Not, no. not that we can prove. Okay. Yeah. You're all well within one grouse of angle. Yeah. If you think of the time lapse from the first pellet to the last pellet, um, it, is, it is fractions of a second. And that's exactly my question. So, yeah, that's, yeah. that's why I figure we asked the experts mm-hmm. here. And, and right, every gun is different. Every shot is different. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's lots of variables that yeah, go into we, that. But. We, we set specs on velocity. We set pattern density specs. We don't, we've studied, you know, shot string, but we don't have a specification. For sure. It, so. Yeah. And there's, there's guys that'll tell you, well, you want a long shot string because then you have the opportunity for that bird to fly into your back pellet or, or whatever it is. But to, in my mind, if I had the ideal shotgun shell, it would be every one of my pellets hits the pattern at one time. Yeah, that way I have, you know, I have a 30 inch circle covered in pellets that all hit instantaneously. And I know that my bird's going to fall within that and I don't have gaps within my pattern. So very few people miss a bird ahead of it. I mean, it happens. Yep. And 
Sure, it might be a little more forgiving because if you if you do if you're shooting ahead of it and it's the tail end of the string that the bird flies into, you're hitting the bird in the head and you're killing it. Yep. Um, you know, it's it's that it's that most people are shooting behind a bird and they're so then if you're shooting behind it and the front end of your string is what hits it, you're hitting it in the rear end and it's getting away. So yep. that so more important to the shot string is where on the bird you're hitting it. Yeah, um, you know. Yeah. So in that case, so so if you're missing a lot, lead them more. Yeah, yeah, and we can kind of always point back to you know typically we're missing by feet, not inches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so on the on the uh, the pattern density, we were talking about that a little bit. Given that you know 100% efficiency, aka every pellet in a 30 inch circle at 40 yards, that would be our goal. Yeah. What is a what's a good standard? What do you look for? Yeah, so so if it's uh, you know a target application or you know your your typical clay load, you're looking for 75% um, or better. And that would yeah. be with with like a full choke. Yeah. Um, that's pretty standard. You'll see across you know the industry what people are doing, uh, kind of thing. Um, if you're getting into larger shot sizes and steel loads, you're you know say a double B steel ounce and a quarter. You're hoping for above 80. There's less pellets in that payload. You want to put as many in that in that 30 inch circle as possible. If you're a turkey guy and you're shooting a TSSO, you better have all your pellets in that 30 inch circle, and you you better have 60% of them in a 10 inch circle actually. So um, yeah, it depends on the, on the load, but uh, Sammy does have some kind of like you know, predetermined like minimums and, um, but 75% for target loads and game loads, that type of stuff is, is pretty common. Um, and up from there. Cool. You know where you guys should do your product development and research is on internet forums. Yeah. There's a lot <laughs> yeah. of guys on there. A lot of guys and girls on internet mm-hmm. forums. They know a lot about shotgun shooting. They do. They do. <laughs> I've, I've joked. I, I do go to forums and I read them. I could probably spend my life on there if I wanted my yeah. research. I've, I've often wanted to go on and be like, I am the guy who ruined <laughs> your shotgun show because we did this, you know, yep. but yeah. uh, there, there, there is, and it's, it's hard to, you know, we try to put as much information out there as you can, yeah. but then sometimes when you do, people just don't believe you, you know. Right. Anyway, but yeah. it is a good source, but it's a, it is a rabbit hole you can get stuck on yes. for sure. Yeah. I have, I have learned a lot. You got to learn how to weed through a little mm-hmm. bit, but, but absolutely uh, a lot can be learned. And I, I was, I was telling Jared this, and I think you guys earlier that I was on one of my favorite uh, Upland uh, internet forums, Upland Journal, and somebody was talking about a, I don't know if it's a new load. You guys can answer. The The Top Gun uh, was for sale at his local Walmart in 28-gauge for six ninety seven a box, yeah. which is a darn good price on 28-gauge ammo. Is that a new load? Yeah, new for uh, this year. Um, we have uh, our president, Jason Vanderbrink, is a very passionate. He's a, he's a good skeet shooter. Okay. And, uh, and he's a very passionate sub-gauge guy. So he challenged us. He said, we need a better and more affordable 28-gauge 410 load for the market. And you guys need to, and he gave us a cost target and we went after it and, and we hit it. So, um, but part of that was by doing that, by hitting that price really enticed like a company, someone like Walmart, they really wanted to bring yes. it in. So our goal was, and his goal is to try to grow sub gauge hunting, kind of like what we have been doing with, with turkey hunting. So yeah. yeah, that is new for this year. We did 20, 28 gauge and 410 loads going at 1330 feet per second. Mm-hmm. Um, three quarter ounce loads, if I remember right. Yeah, I think so. so. Yep. Yeah. Uh, seven and a half, eights and nines and both. I'm excited. Yeah. And it, you know, they say their top gun sporting is what they're called, but yep. they'll make a, a fine, a fine grouse load sure. all, any day of the week. Yeah. So. And now it, would that be in every Walmart or? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty okay. much. Yeah. Cool. Any, every Walmart that carries ammo, I believe sure. would be part okay. of their deal. But we have, we've sold it to the whole, 
our whole customer base too. Gotcha. So you can find it at other places as well. Absolutely. Okay. Excellent. Anything else, guys? I think we're coming up on time. Ryan, any any uh, final thoughts? Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come. Um, I'm looking, you know, please tell the stories about this factory. I'm I'm pretty proud of this factory. I'm second generation. My dad worked 40 years out in that factory wow. building, building shotgun shell primers. Um, you know, that's what enabled me to go off to college and get a degree in biology and, and, and eventually come back here. You hear a lot of stories about families and, and, and I grew up with them. You know, there's families that this is where they work. This is the family family place. Yes, we're a, we're a big ammunition manufacturer, but uh, there's a lot of pride in this community for the products that we make. Um, you know, I have the Anoka City Council in here all the time, the local uh, the local politicians, and they're so proud because I had had one where he he was in he had gone off to Europe on vacation and he found a sporting goods store and he went in there and there was federal ammunition on the shelf in I believe it was France. And it said made in Anoka. Um, so, you know, we're exporting, you know, this community and, 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 and things all over the country and there's pride there. And I think we're pretty proud of our, our opportunities that we provide for women and kids to get into the sport. We think that that's important for the future. We're, you know, our, our commitment to conservation is second to none in this industry. And mostly we just hope people shoot them up because we'll make more. <laughs> I can say this because I'm a Minnesotan born and raised, but as I walked around the factory today, I saw a bunch of hardworking Minnesotan people making ammunition that's going to be shot by outdoorsmen and women and target shooters and everybody, you know, all across your distribution network. And again, I'm obviously biased, but I take a little bit of pride in that. And obviously you do as well. So Adam. Oh yeah. I mean, I guess just, my final thoughts or, or whatever would be get out, enjoy the outdoors, have fun shooting. You know, it, it's, it's a great opportunity to have camaraderie, whether you're hunting or just shooting for fun with your friends or family. Um, enjoy what you're doing. Um, and hopefully you're shooting federal. Yeah. And just to capitalize on what Ryan said, you know, it's a cliche, but if you love what you do, it's not a job. I would say we all, all of us in this room could probably say we get paid to play a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's, there's stressful days. It's like any other work, but I've been able to work in, for this company for 10 years, work in the industry for about 15 and I get to sell ammo and develop new products and shot cartridges that might never see the light of day. So, so it's fantastic. And the, I always try to reiterate to people when we talk to you, whether you're out in the plant, whatever your job is for this company, you know, we're not selling, you know, 30 odd six rounds and 12 gauge shot shells. We're selling, you know, a limit of quail and we're selling trophy deer and we're selling championships, you yeah. know? So that's the hopes and dreams and the experience we're putting out there. So, um, yeah, it's a great place to work. Like you said, ton of pride and, and we just love it. So excellent. Well, I would like to personally thank all three of you for joining us on the project up podcast has been a lot of fun. Uh, we talked about some interesting stuff and I'm sure people will have more questions. Generally speaking, if, if people have, if they want more information or got questions about federal products, where should they go? Who should they contact? Uh, we have, if you go to our website, there's uh, you can go to federal premium or federal premium.com. And there's a reach out to us or contact us. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're cool. on Facebook. Those are probably the, the major ways. And we got people on there 24 seven monitoring. So a lot of those questions actually filter their way to all of us to, sure. to answer sometimes. So the, the best way to get to me is uh, on Twitter. I'm at hunters for con- conservation. 
So okay. Hunters for Conservation is a federal premium uh, trademark, and, and that's the best way to get a hold of the conservation program in the company. Perfect. All right. That about does it for us. Jared, I know we weren't featuring you on the podcast today, but thank you for joining us here. And just a heads up for the Project Upland listeners, they will, uh, they'll be hearing a little bit more from Federal and Jared uh, later this year. we got some plans this fall hunting season, so excited about that. Again, guys, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Project Upland podcast. Thank you to Federal Ammunition. We're done. You've been listening to the Project Upland podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And a reminder that this podcast was brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dog Trick Callers, Yukonuba Dog Food, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Find more podcasts, articles, films, and much more at projectupland.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.